So today we're going to talk about new. I don't want to be too loud. New treatment options for managing pain. This is for emergency medicine. So I don't know that that made it up there. A lot of it can be applicable to primary care and outpatient, but some of it will be more specific to inpatient settings. So I hope you find it helpful. I have no disclosures. And we're just going to talk about novel medications and novel modalities for treating pain. And we're going to go through some cases, which I feel are a little bit more fun, to highlight some of the new treatment options. So the first case that we have is a 57-year-old female. She presents with what she believes to be renal colic pain. She has a history of kidney stones. She's had them in the past. And she comes in, she's just saying, I'm having unrelenting flank pain. She feels terrible. She's a little bit nauseous. We do see that she has some hematuria, and we do do a renal ultrasound. There's no hydronephrosis, but we're still pretty suspicious that there's a kidney stone. Standard of care in the emergency department is to give an intravenous anti-inflammatory, maybe give some fluids, plus or minus, and because she was nauseous, we decided to give her a little bit of Zofran. We go back in, we reevaluate her. She said, you know, I'm really not doing any better. I still have a lot of pain. It didn't really work. What do you think we can do next? So after you max out on intravenous anti-inflammatories, next line is pretty much opiates. So we do morphine, five milligrams. She's a 70 kilo patient. So we give her a little less than the 0.1 milligram per kilogram, which is recommended weight base. And she really still says, you know, doc, I don't feel better. I don't have much relief. She's kind of doing that kidney stone writhing around in pain in the bed. And so we say, listen, we're going to titrate more opiates. You can certainly get more opiates. Our goal is to get you intolerable, to have tolerable pain. And after that, she starts vomiting. So we know, of course, when we give opiates, one of the side effects will be vomiting. But we're trying this balancing act in the ER to get the pain to a tolerable level and also manage her side effects. So at this point, we've given 10 milligrams of IV morphine. We've given Zofran times two. She's had her liter of fluid. In our workup, we do not see any red flags that something else is going on. We're still very suspicious. It's renal colic. So where do we go next? She's really exhausted standard of care. And we can continue with the opiates, but she's saying, please, I'm feeling so sick. So we can move to a different opiate, maybe a synthetic that has less you know, uh, side effects for nausea, vomiting. But let's just try and think, what can we do next? Next case, similar. This is a young man who comes in also with kidney stone pain. He has had them in the past as well. And he presents, and he's a little bit shy about giving you his history, but he does let you know he has a history of opiate addiction, and he's in recovery. We decide that we go ahead with our standard of care. He's not vomiting. He's able to tolerate PO. So in addition to the intravenous anti-inflammatory, we add an analgesic dose of acetaminophen in hopes that the synergistic effects will help knock out most of his pain. Pain is not improved. What he does endorse to you is that the last time he had the kidney stone, he was a county or two over. He went into the hospital. And after IV, after intravenous um, Toradol, they said, we really don't have much else besides opiates. So then began the discussion about whether or not you're going to give a recovering heroin addict opiates. Again, our goal is to get the patient out of pain to get them to where they can go home and they can function. But when we've exhausted the tools in our toolbox and all we have left are opiates, we're between a rock and a hard place. And we had a long discussion where he said he really went back and forth in his mind about taking opiates, having that craving, or just getting out of pain. He was feeling miserable. I don't know if anybody's had a kidney stone, but is very, very uncomfortable. So for this patient, 
we really want to think, what else do we have? We do not want to contribute to any relapse. We want to have a patient-centered discussion, but what are our options? So in terms of standard of care for renal colic, we've done the intravenous anti-inflammatories. You can add a little bit of acetaminophen. And then after that, we're really looking mostly at opiates. If you, your uh, hospital has IV acetaminophen, then you can use that route if a patient is vomiting. But we're kind of left with what? So one of the novel treatments, and it's been going on in different uh, subspecialties, intravenous lidocaine has been used for a while, but in the emergency department, this is pretty new. First studies that were done on intravenous lidocaine were in about 2004. It looked at using it in conjunction with opiates for oncologic pain. So people who are end of life, they're receiving a lot of opiates, they're very sedated, they had a poor quality of life, they're very constipated and nauseous. Researchers started saying, what can we add to get them feeling a little bit better? And they started performing intravenous lidocaine infusions in the hospice palliative care setting, and the results were very compelling. Patients had fantastic analgesia with much less opiates, they had less sedation, and they reported improved quality of life. So this looked like a win. Now, this is an end-stage end patients, so although we, of course, do not want to have side effects, this population, they were more willing to accept some side effects. Now, this translated into post-operative pain, so healthy patients coming out of abdominal surgery or cardiothoracic surgery, and there were some meta-analyses that looked at whether or not we can use intravenous lidocaine for post-operative pain. We know that giving a lot of opiates post-operatively can prolong ileus, can keep patients in bed, can delay discharge. So this group looked at giving intravenous lidocaine infusions as compared to placebo and what the results were. And they found that patients had significant improvement in pain, they were getting out of bed a little quicker, they had return of bowel function, and there was really no adverse life-threatening events that they noted in their study. So Cochrane then did a review in 2015, looking again at post-operative pain, intravenous lidocaine versus placebo, and they found, again, pretty interesting results. They found patients had immediate pain with the infusion that lasted up to 24 hours. They found a quicker return of bowel function. They did allow for rescue opiates in the study, but they found that compared to placebo, the intravenous lidocaine group re received significantly less opiates. There was quicker return of bowel function, and the big one was a decreased length of stay. Of course, they want patients to be up, they want patients to go home. So this was a very significant finding. And the side effects, there was no increased rate of death, no increased rate of arrhythmia, and then there was no toxicity or heart disorder. So the Cochrane statement is there's moderate evidence to support intravenous lidocaine setting for post-operative pain. So we're going to move forward, or we're going to move a little bit backwards to 2012, when over in Iran, researchers said, well, we see that there's some movement with IV lidocaine for post-operative pain. What are the other applications? Over in Iran, they do not have intravenous anti-inflammatories. So people who come in and are vomiting with renal colic, really their only treatment option is opiates. So they were using a lot of opiates, and they were having some issues with that. There's, of course, increased adverse drug events when you're using a lot of opiates, and they said, let's take a look at what else we can do. So looking at the oncological research and the post-operative pain, they decided to do a few case series. They started with a case report, and they compared IV lidocaine to opiates. This translated into a randomized control study of about 200 patients, Everybody did get IV, I'm sorry, excuse me, that's a lie. Everybody did get intramuscular anti-inflammatory injection. And then one group received IV lidocaine. The other group received intravenous morphine. 
The IV lidocaine is dosed at 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, and they used a standard weight-based morphine, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. And what they found were at 5, 10, 15, and 30 minutes post-administration, the intravenous lidocaine group did better than the morphine group. There was really no significant difference in adverse events. There was very few adverse events. So with the lidocaine group, 87% of patients had no reported side effects. And with the morphine group, 86% had no side effects. And people who did re report side effects, they were pretty transient, not significant, and kind of comparable in both groups. The thought process behind why intravenous lidocaine works, especially in renal colic, is that it may anesthetize the ureter, similar to like it anesthetizes whatever you're injecting or if you're doing dental block in the dentist's office. That's the thought. The second thought that needs to be investigated is whether or not it actually paralyzes the ureter and causes a quicker propulsion or expulsion of the stone out. If that were the case, that would be a fantastic side effect to the medication, but that has not yet been validated. But the thought process behind the analgesia is that it just, it, as a sodium channel blocker, causes analgesia in the ureter. So the, some considerations with IV lidocaine. It's best to have a patient monitored. We know that IV lidocaine was used as an antiarrhythmic liberally, but in some patients it can also induce arrhythmia, so they should be on a cardiac monitor. We want to make sure that there's no issues going on hemodynamically. Additionally, patients who have a history of seizure, this should be avoided, even if it's an alcohol withdrawal seizure. The lidocaine does reduce the seizure threshold, and we want to avoid that complication. And lastly, it should not be a medication that's pushed. It should be put in a 50cc bag or a 100cc bag. In our shop, we put 200 milligrams in 100 milligram, uh, I'm sorry, 200 milligrams in 100 cc's of NS. And we put it on a pump. The nurse puts the patient's weight, and it infuses the weight-based dose over 10 minutes. We've had no issues with any arrhythmias. We are able to discharge successfully. There's no monitoring that needs to happen post-infusion. As long as you monitor for about 15 minutes post-infusion, you're okay. So back to our patients. So MM and JA both received intravenous lidocaine. The young man who had the history of opiate addiction, his response was, when I came back to reevaluate him, he said, what did you give me? I said, I told you I was giving you lidocaine, something that you would get at the dentist. He said, I, but something that I get at the dentist, you put through my vein, my pain is gone, but I didn't have that warm kind of opiate feeling afterwards, but I swore you'd probably give me an opiate. I said, I did not give you an opiate. I gave you intravenous lidocaine. MM calls the hospital ER a couple days later, and she said, can you please tell me what medication they gave me because my family thinks I'm crazy. So I get the chart, I call her back, and I said, you got IV lidocaine. She goes, yeah, but that's what you, I get at the dentist. I thought I misheard in my distress what you gave me. I said, I gave you IV lidocaine. And she said, well, my family thinks I'm nuts. I said, well, reassure them you are not nuts, not at least regarding to this. And you got IV lidocaine. So it's surprising. It's something definitely out of the box. But there's some research. We probably need more research. It's not for every single renal colic patient but it's certainly a new alternative that we have. In people who fail standard of care, you can add this on. In people who have issues with opiates, you can use this in lieu of opiates. So just something that's cutting edge. Hopefully more research will come our way, but it's something that we can use in the emergency department. So we have to have fun, because why not? And we're in Vegas. So this is a gentleman from Britain who is a plumber, and he aspired to have the fastest toilet. 
Apparently there was a toilet before this that went 48 miles an hour, and his life goal was to beat that record, and he did. His toilet goes 55 miles an hour. And if you note, his pants are down, just for effect. So moving on, case three, we have a 57-year-old guy, moves a sofa, has some worsening of his chronic back pain. He says, you know, I have back pain from time to time. It's not a big deal. I usually take an ibuprofen. This is a little bit worse, and I did take my ibuprofen. I'm really not feeling any better. You look at his vital signs. They're okay. His past medical history is just high cholesterol. On physical exam, you note that he's really not able to move very well. He has some decreased range of motion, but he's got sensation in both legs. He has reflexes. And you notice that he's complaining of some pain that's kind of wrapping around, maybe some referred pain. So treatment options. It's not opiates. Opiates really should not be the first line for acute low back pain. There have been some studies looking at acute occupational low back pain and the trends when we prescribe opiates immediately from the ER. This study done by Lee in 2016 shows that people who received opiates right off the bat for acute low back pain tended to have higher rates of MRI, had more missed days out of work and disability, and 29% of them ended up on chronic opiates. Once we open that box with opiates, it's hard to then take them away. They are effective. They're effective for many reasons, not only for pain, but also there's a sense of euphoria, and sometimes that can be self-medicating for other things besides just pain relief. And so this starts a cascade that's hard to undo. Some other literature, oh, and these are the alternatives that I recommend using, so we're going to talk about them. Some other literature done, uh, there was a JAMA article by Friedman in 2015, and in his study he had three groups. There was the, everybody had acute low back pain, everybody got naproxen. But the second group got oxycodone APAP, and the third group got cyclobenzaprine or Flexeril. And the goal was, if we add opiates to the NSAID, are we going to get some better relief? If we add the muscle relaxer, are we going to get some better relief? The answer is no. The naproxen group did great. There was no difference in analgesia when you add an opiate or you add a muscle relaxant. So the take-home message is, maybe we're not getting any more bang for our buck when we're adding opiates. And opiates, we know, can be addicting. We know can have significant morbidity. And we know may be hard to get the patient off. So if you're going to add something to anti-inflammatory or your patient has not done as well as you'd like with just anti-inflammatory, I would advocate, if there's no issue, to add the Flexeril or another muscle relaxing medication. Although the evidence doesn't show that you're going to have fantastic relief, you're adding a medication that may not be as addictive and they may not be as difficult to titrate the patient off. Additionally, when we look at um, ibuprofen, the studies show that the analgesic ceiling is really about 400 milligrams. So we give 600, we give 800, and we feel like, yes, we're doing more. Or it's just a larger patient and we think we want to go higher. The studies show that there's really no more of an analgesic benefit. They do show that there's sometimes more anti-inflammatory effect, but that doesn't translate into improved pain relief. Now, there are a group of patients who will say, listen, I can't tolerate ibuprofen. I have a little bit of gastritis or for whatever reason. If we give them a 400 milligram a day dose and we cap them at 1,200, they may be able to tolerate it. Whereas if we're giving them 800 four or five times a day, we are going to anticipate they might fail because of side effects. So appreciating the analgesic ceiling will allow us to maybe utilize ibuprofen a little bit more in certain populations. Additionally, adding acetaminophen to anti-inflammatory has shown to improve pain relief. 
If there's no issue with giving acetaminophen, it's a pretty benign medication. We should always be giving at least a gram for analgesia, and we may get a little bit more relief when adding that. Topicals. So in the emergency room, at least, I think we often forget about the skin as a mode of administration for medication, very underutilized, but it's whatever percentage of the body, so it's our best friend. And we can really utilize it for quick relief of focal issues. So acute low back pain. Yes, we're going to give systemic medication, but what about going ahead and targeting the area where there's pain? Lidoderm patches have been shown to be effective, but the real all-star of topicals is really diclofenac gel. Because it's a topical, it's not absorbed systemically like a transdermal delivery system. So in patients who cannot tolerate NSAIDs, or who otherwise there would be contraindications for use, the diclofenac gel or the flector patch, which is the diclofenac patch, really can be used. You have about 1% to 2% systemic absorption, really no systemic side effects, and it's a focal administration of anti-inflammatory at the site where the patient has the problem. The NNT, number needed to treat for diclofenac gel for musculoskeletal sprains and strains, is 1.8. So you need to treat 1.8 patients to get the benefit in one patient. So it's a pretty low NNT for a lot of the stuff that we do. And I think if there's no issue and there's no reason why the patient can't try it, let's go ahead and exhaust these alternatives, utilize the topicals before we're jumping to other stronger medications. So myofascial back pain and trigger points. Myofascial pain syndrome is a painful condition where patients may have taut bands or nodular type areas of muscle spasm. It's hyper-irritable muscle. It can come from acute repetitive strain. It can come from traumatic injuries. But they tend to be problem areas for patients that flare up from time to time. When you're examining the patient, again, you may feel this taut band or this nodule that fully reproduces the patient's pain. They may also complain a little bit of referred pain from that section, and they're usually very, very tender. Some more severe cases of myofascial pain syndrome may actually have autonomic dysfunction along with the taut bands and the very tender area in their back that can cause skin changes, erythema, and kind of more significant presentation. Additionally, what we don't appreciate is that trigger points as a component of myofascial painful pain syndrome may present kind of with not just painful complaints, but other more um, nonspecific modalities. So tension headache, but because of a trigger point or even ringing of the ears, we can have temporal mandibular joint dysfunction. So when patients present with headache complaints or TMJ, Doing a really good exam and seeing if you can find a reproducible focal area of tenderness that's a trigger point is important because we can treat that very effectively with a trigger point injection. According to the CDC in a 2009 report, myofascial back pain was a huge problem. They say it affects up to 10% of people in the country, and it can really have a lot of disability associated with it. And it's probably very under-recognized and under-diagnosed in the emergency department. So in emergency medicine literature, there's a push to examine this a little bit closer, see what patients may qualify for trigger point injections, and go ahead and offer them this really helpful technique. So trigger point injections, the classic area for trigger points is really in the back, but you can have them anywhere. When patients come in with neck, upper, or low back pain, it would really be in their best interest for you to do a full exam of their back and see exactly where the pain is coming from. 
Indications for doing the trigger point injection are that you have you know, relative confidence that you found a nodule or top band that you think is a trigger point, fully reproduces their pain, may have some referred pain pattern as well. And the contraindications are and, you know, anything that we would typically not inject the skin, so any cellulitis over the area, if you're concerned about bleeding, or if there's an allergy to local anesthetic, or if the patient refuses. You know, and this, the anticoagulation, I think, is a moot point when we're doing trigger point injection because anything that we're injecting, we can palpate, and anything we can palpate, we can put pressure on. So these are some of the recommendations, I think, that are pretty overcautious. We're not talking about, you know, putting a subclavian line that we can't compress. We're talking about musculoskeletal issue. So I, I disagree a little bit with this. If you get an INR back, that's 29 you have bigger problems, don't go ahead and do a trigger point. But other than that, go ahead and put a little good pressure on there and you should be fine, so I agree. So the equipment you need is not much. The gauge needle will depend on where the trigger point is, how deep, and kind of how you're gonna get there. So the recommendations are 21 gauge to 25. If you have something superficial in the neck or the trapezius muscle, use the smallest needle you can to get where you're going. Something a little deeper in the gluteal area or the low back, you may have to use something a little bit larger, a little bit longer. Plus or minus an injectate, which we'll talk about on the next slide. Band-aid, alcohol swab, and let the patient know you're going to go ahead and put a needle in their skin. Uh, so dry needling is really the part of this procedure that gets the job done. You can add local anesthetic. You can add Botox. You can add a little bit of normal saline. People have also added steroids. The studies show that there's not much more relief when you add these other medications, except for lidocaine or marcaine. When you add a local anesthetic, what you're going to do is reduce post-injection soreness. So patients who have trigger point injections, often they say they have wonderful relief, but they do feel a different kind of pain after the injection, which is basically you were stabbing me in my muscle and I'm a little sore. So the local anesthetic works not only to kind of wash away some of the material that was broken up when you were going ahead and in injecting the muscle, but also provides a little bit of analgesia for that post-injection soreness. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. The goal here is to use the needle to break up the muscle spasm. It is really the only thing that's shown to be efficacious. Anti-inflammatories, acupressure, the icy spray with some pushing, little physical therapy and stretching, all of those will be okay. But really, to immediately relieve that taut muscle spasm, got to put a needle in and force the muscle to relax. So trigger point injection is really the most effective way to get immediate relief. When you are trying to feel for a trigger point, you want to really map out the entire back. You want to feel for any lumpy, bumpy areas that fully reproduce pain. When you are palpating the skin, if you can identify this taut band that's really, really sore, you go ahead and you put it in between your fingers, pinch the area so that you know you have the trigger point mobilized, and you can go ahead and you put the needle in at a 30-degree angle, and you kind of go in all four quadrants to break up the muscle spasm, and I do it twice. That's just what I do. You could do it four times. The patient may not be pleased the more you do it, but you just got to break up each section of that muscle spasm. You can do a little local anesthetic with each stop 
or you can do the local anesthetic at the end. And we're talking one or two cc's max. Very easy procedure. You can do it anywhere. In the ER, you could do it outpatient. Very efficacious. So our gentleman that we saw, we did 400 milligrams of ibuprofen. We went ahead and added the analgesic dose of acetaminophen, and he did have a trigger point in his back. And whether or not you want to be hugged, these patients will hug you because they really feel so much better. Their muscle will twitch a little bit when you put the needle in, and that's the indication you got it right. And that's just the muscle being forced to finally relax. And patients will have immediate relief of their pain, and they feel really good. It will last a couple days to a couple weeks. They may need repeated injections, but especially in the ER, our goal is to get immediate relief and to get them back home and back to their lives. And this is a really effective way to do it. So the take-home point number two is when we have acute low back pain patients, let's try everything we can before we jump to opiates. You will always have the option of opiates, but if you start opiates early, you're going to, again, have a hard time probably doing anything else. So let's investigate anti-inflammatory, PO, as well as topical. Let's add some acetaminophen, if necessary, a muscle relaxant, and do not forget topicals. If you find a trigger point, do the trigger point injection. It's a billable procedure. Each muscle group is a new procedure to bill for. And again, it's very efficacious, and patients will feel so much better. Silly, silly number two is this young lady whose name is Lindsay. She lives in the Midwest, and she wanted to crush some apples with her bicep. So she has the world record for the most apples crushed with a bicep in one minute. So gentlemen, if you need a hobby, you have to beat this young lady. She's kind of, she's kind of tiny, but she's got strong biceps. She probably has a few trigger points, I bet. So last case, we have a 23-year-old male who comes in for gluteal abscess. So he says, you know, I've had abscesses in the past. They kill me. Please put me to sleep. Oh, but I have to go work in a couple minutes. Sir, those two do not go together. And, you know, abscesses are so painful. We do not do a great job, not because we can, but because local anesthetic just doesn't work great in these terrible infectious environments. So you feel bad. You want to give him some relief. You're not going to procedurally sedate him. He wants to go to work. So what are we going to do? You're going to do a little nitrous oxide. So nitrous oxide has been around forever and ever and ever. And it's come into favor. It's come out of favor. Anesthesia is using it. They're not using it as much. Who is using it are the dentists. So dental offices use nitrous oxide all the time in an unmonitored setting in pediatrics as well as adults. So I did a pain management fellowship that was focused in emergency medicine. I rotated with the oral maxillofacial surgeons. And I'm watching them in the outpatient clinic do nitrous oxide all day long. And their patients are pain-free. Their patients are happy when they come to the dentist, happy when they leave the dentist. And I thought, we're in an acute care setting. Why are we not using this? So nitrous oxide is an analgesic and an um, anxiolytic. So it has dual properties that will help in the ER a lot. It's a maximum concentration of 70%, so the patients are always getting 30% FiO2. And it's kind of the propofol of the gas world. When you put it on, patients immediately feel better. And when you take it off, the effects are gone. There's no NPO requirements. They can go home and drive. So it's a really nice supplement to use when you're trying to get the patients in and out, but you want to help them feel better. The anxiolytic and analgesic effect is important because we know with pain, not only is it the pain, but it's also the anxiety. So especially in pediatrics, where they're seeing the IV coming towards their arm, they don't have pain yet, but they're so anxious. And so instead of strapping them to the bed, 
using something to break that anxiety and to get them a little bit calm is the better way to do things. There's a lot of research in pediatrics that show it is very effective. And we also talked about no NPO requirements. What I love is that you don't need to monitor. So when we do procedural sedation in the emergency department and we're giving strong anxiolytic or um, sedative medications, we need a full setup. We need to monitor their airway. We need to monitor their blood pressure. We need a nurse at bedside. So to procedurally sedate to do a large abscess, it's huge resource utilization, huge time suck. If we can do it with something like nitrous oxide, where we need no monitoring, the patient will be on a pulse ox because I guess we're in a hospital, we should put them on a pulse ox. And then they can go home afterwards, really a win-win situation. There are some issues with nitrous oxide because it's so great and it works so well. Practitioners like to do a little on the side. So that's a problem. You have to remember there's a potential for that. And if you're not in an OMFS setting, then it's not gonna be piped in through your walls, unfortunately. So most likely you're going to need a mobile unit. You're going to have to get the mobile unit and get the, you know, the equipment that goes with it. So that may be a deterrent for use. Additionally, they used to have, for the full face mask, straps that strapped it onto the patient's face. But they decided they didn't really like that because if the patient got a little somnolent, the mask stayed on as opposed to the mask falling off. So now we're advocating for either the patient to hold or the nurse to hold, or maybe you have a medical student or a tech, but someone does have to hold the mask. And lastly, when you do use a full face mask, which is a great way to deliver the nitrous oxide as opposed to the nasal hood, patients sometimes feel a little bit claustrophobic. So patients who feel that way may not be able to use the device. The evidence is just huge. There's enormous amount of evidence pre-hospital in pediatrics. And over in Europe, they're using it for everything. They're using it for colonoscopy. They're using it as a complement to other modalities for labor pain. They're using it for endoscopy. So it's got a lot of benefits, and it's really being explored for a lot of different painful procedures. But for the ER, you could see it's just, we have so many uses. Contraindications, so because you're administering a gas and because you, although you're getting 30% FiO2, if there's an issue, if there's a patient who has significant issue with lung disease or COPD, they're in respiratory distress, let's not strap a mask on their face and give them nitrous oxide. We'll talk about vitamin B12 deficiency. Also, nitrous oxide will cause gases to expand when they're in, and cause gases to expand anyway, but when they're trapped in an enclosed space, that is bad. So a patient who has otitis or a small bowel obstruction, even recent eye surgery, sometimes there's air bubbles left over. These are patients we do not want to give nitrous oxide to because we do not want to have barotrauma. Also, if you have to do a mental status exams, you're not going to get a great exam. I think that's the tram. You're not going to get a great exam while they're on nitrous oxide because they're going to be a little bit silly. And lastly, there have been some studies that dental hygienists who are exposed to nitrous oxide over long periods of time may have increased rate of spontaneous abortion. So we translated that into, listen, first and trimester pregnancy, just do not use it. But again, safe in third trimester and safe because they're using it for labor. So some of the toxicity and serious adverse events. So with the vitamin B12, this is not applicable in the acute setting. What they found is people who are using nitrous oxide recreationally, so some of the dentists, dental hygienists, even respiratory therapists, they find that when people are abusing it chronically over months, that they develop myelopathy, polyneuropathy, and they believe this is due to the effects it has on vitamin B12 synthesis. So if a patient comes in with terrible pernicious anemia and they tell you their vitamin B12 is zero, 
So fine, you don't have to give it. But for most other people, we're not going to have to worry about this because we're giving it single time in the emergency department. There was one study of laryngospasm in a healthy 16-month-old boy when he was getting 70% nitrous oxide. There was a little bit of laryngospasm, and then they, would, they did the chest x-ray. They did find some infiltrates in the upper lobe, and they were concerned that that was aspiration. But that was, the studies have, you know, other studies looking at almost 8,000 children show that really there's very, very rare occurrences of serious adverse events. The most common side effect is vomiting, and that's going to be related to duration of administration and percent that you're administering. So in a patient who's getting 30 minutes of 70% FiO2, you may want to pre-medicate them or may want to watch them afterwards for signs of nausea and vomiting. So take home point number three is nitrous oxide has been around forever. Dentists are using it every single day. It is a fantastic analgesic and anxiolytic. It can be used in lieu of procedural sedation or it can be used as a sole analgesic for pain during a procedure. This is like 2015, mind you. This is not 1977. This gentleman has in his life eaten 22,477 Big Macs. He does not have stock in McDonald's. He just loves Big Macs. So whoever his primary care physician is, is probably horrified with the LDL. But that is our little Guinness Book of World Records finale. So in summary, intravenous lidocaine can be used for renal colic as a first line or as an alternative for patients who cannot tolerate standard of care. Think about the skin when treating musculoskeletal pain using topicals or patches. Remember anti-inflammatory plus acetaminophen will have better analgesia than used alone. Opiates are really not the first line, and you can always add them later. And nitrous oxide is gaining more popularity in the emergency department setting. And the last thing I'll say is um, I started a program at my hospital in New Jersey called Alto. It's an alternatives to opiates program. And this was in response to the opiate epidemic and an attempt to try and decrease unnecessary exposure to opiates by looking at what conditions had some research for alternatives. And that's where this talk came from. So the five conditions we identified that had good alternative treatment that's efficacious that we could use in the ER is renal colic. We use IV lidocaine. Extremity fracture dislocation. We're using ultrasound-guided nerve blocks in the emergency department in lieu of procedural sedation for reduction or in lieu of opiates for fracture pain. Also, migraine headache. We adapted the Cleveland Clinic migraine algorithm. With this algorithm, they went from almost 66% ER use of opiates down to 14%. And it's the migraine stuff that you know about, but some things that we don't typically use in the ER. So they're doing metoclopramide. They're doing fluids. They're doing... Um, some valproic acid, they're doing some steroid, they're doing sumatriptan, and they have a stepwise approach, and if patients fail, then they're putting them in observation with a neuroconsult. But they've had really compelling results, so we adapted that. So we have renal colic, we have headache, extremity fracture, musculoskeletal pain, and last is radiculopathy pain. So in the ER, we're not using a lot of gabapentin all the time, maybe for shingles or post-herpetic neuralgia, but my goal was to introduce this medication to emergency practitioners because it can be so efficacious for neuropathic pain when we know not much else helps. So we're starting it in the emergency department, we're discharging patients with it. And then musculoskeletal pain is really what I talked about here. Multimodal analgesia, utilizing topicals, and utilizing trigger point injection. So with this 
implementation, we have a 47.6% reduction in ED prescribed opiates, and our pain scores are the same in both groups. So we started off around an 8 pre and post implementation, and we went to a 1.9 and a 2.1, and that was not statistically significant, which made us very happy. So just in this opiate epidemic, opiates are so important, we need to use them, but we have to appreciate for most conditions they're really not indicated as first line, and there's effective alternatives. So I hope this was helpful. I am open for any questions. Yeah, so we're doing gabapentin, 300 milligrams, just an analgesic dose in the emergency department. And then we'll send them home. We're doing a single dose. And then if it's a healthy person, we're not concer con terribly concerned about dizziness, we could do 300 milligrams QHS. If it's an elderly patient or you know, a real slender patient and we're concerned about the side effects, we'll start 100. And then we ask them to follow up with primary care. We know this has to be titrated to much higher than 300 milligrams a day, but we're not going to do that in the ER. So we say, listen, this medication may be efficacious. It's going to take some time. We'll start it now, follow up with the PMD, and they'll probably titrate. Yes? There, you know, post-abdominal pain, there are. There are other indications. Because this is relatively new in emergency medicine, I did not want to start this program and have everybody in the ER be given IV lidocaine. Although there's evidence, I thought, you know, we're gonna, we're, we would probably love to use it as an alternative to opiates for everything. And I wanted to get a clear understanding of side effects, patient reaction, you know, the um, operation behind the pharmacy batching it. So we made the single indication of renal colic for the ER, but in the research, it's used for a variety of other painful conditions, yes. You know, for herpetic neuralgia, for neuropathic pain, they're put on infusions, and for post-operative pain as well. A lot. <laughs> it was like my baby for a year. Um, I spent a year building the program. I did grand rounds, not only for the ER, but for other specialties that might be affected. For example, orthopedics, if we're doing nerve blocks. Also with surgery, if we're giving ketamine or any other medications for abdominal pain. And then I did simulation labs for trigger point injection and nerve block. And then I was in the ER during, for administrative hours, kind of roaming around, hovering over people, and letting them know when there may or may not have been indication. So a lot of time and energy went into the pre-implementation education, because without it, you know, we were not going to get anywhere. But we did this as a department-wide initiative. So the chairman, hospital administration, CEO were all behind it. We were really lucky. We got a lot of um, buy-in, and we got a lot of support. And then because it was a department-wide initiative, a lot of our practitioners felt supported in doing some of these alternatives that we had never done before. I went to the providers to educate them, yeah. Yeah, so we just got back our numbers at the 47.6 just came back two weeks ago. My God, it was very exciting. Um, so now we're doing the fun part of, you know, writing it, and the residents are doing the lit review, and we're talking with the statistician. So we were hoping to have it ready to be submitted in the fall. Well, this is kind of the fall, in the kind of pre-winter time. But yes, it will be coming out for publication, yeah. I'm sorry? Well, we're going to shoot high for, you know, kind of New England Journal, but we'll see who takes us. <laughs> yes. No, 
We haven't no noticed a decrease in volume, but what we did get called about was one of our neighboring hospitals, their CEO called our CEO, and said, so what are you doing over there? Because we have an influx of drug seekers who won't go to you guys anymore, and m my docs are getting real <laughs> It's your hospital? I'm sorry. What, I, what the CEO said to your CEO is Dr. LaPietra would love to come over and educate your staff. I've been speaking exhaustively, but feel very blessed to be able to do so, to surrounding hospitals in South Jersey, in New York. Um, and a couple of the neighboring hospitals have started implementation. I don't know where these poor souls will go. We're going to just keep pushing them, I don't know, south or west. You know, part of the other program, part of Alto is also we have an opiate dependence piece. So we have a, we have peer counselors who come over and speak to anybody who says they have trouble with opiates. We have an agreement with a group called Eva's Village, which is a mental health facility, to get them appointments. We're starting a Suboxone program to induce Suboxone in the ER. So my goal is not to, you know, prevent all this and say, screw the rest of you. My, it, it's relatively comprehensive. Um, so addiction is a disease. We need to embrace it, and we need to help the people who come in. So that's the other component. But tell your CEO I'm here. I'm ready. I'm sorry. Yes? I don't know that it's a huge. We see 170,000 people a year. And we've only had Alto for eight or nine months. So when we run the numbers, we see on average five to 600 patients a day in the ER, sometimes a little bit less. We're really, really, really busy. We have not seen a significant drop in our volume. We're just always busy. We're always max. Now, when we look at a year-long retrospective view at our numbers, the drug-seeking patients who come are not going to be 10,000. You know, I think there's a small group of them, frequent flyers. I think they hospital shop anyway. So I, you know, in a year, if I'm lucky enough to be invited back, I can maybe share some more data and say, you know what, gosh, we saw a dip. We saw less drug seekers. Um, I mean, I don't mean to be callous about it, uh, but I don't think it's a huge population of people. I don't think when we see 170,000 people, it's going to cause a significant decrease in our patient volume in general. No, it's about the same. It's, the medications that we're using are not expensive. Um, you know, they're, they're as cheap as the opiates are, so there's not much financial difference. ASEP now, American College of Emergency Physicians, their monthly newsletter, I wrote an article and I published the protocols in the article. Also, Annals of Emergency Medicine did a news and perspective article this month, which has the protocols. My email, which I should have put up here, and I apologize for not putting up here, is, is on everything and also on the first, no, it's not. It's just my name is on the first slide. It's um, my last name, L-A-P-I-E-T-R-A, at sjhmc.org, St. Joseph Hospital Medical Center.org. And I share the protocols. They're, really, they're not proprietary. My goal is for this to kind of 
help with a paradigm shift and become a national model. And again, you know, we use ketamine, and I know there's some issues with ketamine state to state, but, and the intravenous lidocaine, the Pharmaceutical and Therapeutics Committee had no issue. There's a lot of evidence, not all of its emergency department, but there's substantial evidence to support its use and with, you know, monitoring restrictions. And as we get more information about it, I mean, that may be one medication that they may give you some trouble. But the simple thing like the musculoskeletal injuries is stuff we already have. We stock lidoderm patches in the ER. We stock flector patches in the ER, but we had them already. Um, so it's a little bit of a discussion with pharmacies sometimes, but everybody was willing to help and everybody really bought in because our goal is to prevent, prevent addiction. If we can expose less people to opiates and we can have less opiates hanging out in cabinets in the community, I'm hoping that will mean less addiction and less death. I don't think it's up on our hospital website, but it's a St. Joseph's Regional Medical Center in Patterson. Um, if you Google my name, you'll get uh, some information, um, some, some of the news articles, but emailing me is probably the easiest way. I'd be happy to share it. All right, any other questions? Okay, thank you so much for your time.